All right. My name is Daniel. I am one of the pastors and elders here at Aletheia Church. Um, last week, if you remember at the very beginning of his sermon, Pastor Kevin lamented the fact that he had to make it through two and a half chapters of the book of Judges. So I guess he thought it would be funny to give me four chapters to try and make it through this week. So we're going to do it, and we're going to show Pastor Kevin how it's done this morning, right? He's in, he's in Tampa preaching somewhere else. So here we go. Hold on to your seats, because this is going to be a fast, fun ride. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born a child, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines." Then the woman came and told her husband, a man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from and he did not tell me his name, but he said to me, behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. So this story opens up once again. We see the people of Israel have turned away from God. They are worshiping idols, and they are in need of a deliverer. So God himself, the angel of the Lord, shows up to this woman. She is mentioned several times across these four chapters, and her name is never given, not one single time. But he tells her, this child that is going to be born to you is going to be a Nazarite. Now, if you don't know what a Nazarite is or a Nazarite vow is, and you want to learn a little bit more, you can go to Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. The basics of being a Nazarite are this. You are never allowed to touch grapes. You can't eat grapes. You can't drink wine. You are to never come in contact with a dead body, and you are not to cut your hair people would generally or normally take Nazarite vows for a certain period of time to abstain from these things. So what is unique about the Samson story is that he was to be a Nazarite his entire life, and not even his entire life, even his mom pre-conception, right? So here she is. She is given these instructions by the angel of the Lord that she is to drink no wine or strong drink. She is to eat nothing unclean, that she is to purify herself as well. And so having this experience, she runs up to her husband and she says, hey, this man of God came to me and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. She's not exactly who this, who, she's not exactly sure who this is yet, but we will see that all will be revealed to her. She tells her husband exactly what the angel of the Lord says to her. And then I think Manoah prays probably the greatest parental prayer in all the Bibles. So let me say to you, if you one day hope to have children, if you are in the process of having children, if you have children, if you have grandchildren, this needs to be your prayer beginning now through all of your days for your children. Because Manoah, Samson's dad, prays this. Oh, Lord, please let the man of God 
whom you sent come again to us and teach us what we are to do with the child who will be born. Parents, soon-to-be parents, far off in the distant parents, you need to know the greatest thing you can ever ask of God is for him to teach you, for his Holy Spirit to teach you what you are to do with the children who are given to you. And the Bible says that God actually listens to the voice of Manoah and the angel of God comes back to the woman as she sat in the field. Again, he's nowhere around, but when he shows back up, she's like, Come on, honey, you got to see this guy. You got to meet this angel of the Lord. And so they begin to have this conversation. He asks him, Are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. This is a clear declaration that it is God who is speaking to Manoah and to his wife. This is the same phrasing as when God reveals himself to Moses as I am. I am that I am, the great I am. This is in reference to, and we see Jesus make statements like this in the New Testament when he says, I am. When he says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. Those seven I am statements in the gospel of John. This is the same phrasing. This is a clear declaration that it is God himself, the second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Christ, who is speaking to Manoah and his wife. And listen to what he says. Again, Manoah asks an incredible question. Now, when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? Parents, soon-to-be parents, far off of the distant parents, you need to mimic Manoah. You need to pray that God would teach you what to do and that God would reveal to you who your child is to be and what their mission will be as God brings them to life. He responds to her and he responds to Manoah and he says, everything that I've commanded your wife to do, that's what I want you to do right now. And Manoah says to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name so that when your words come true, we may honor you? And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? This is very similar to the Gideon story that I preached about a few weeks ago. What takes place after this is that Manoah and his wife, they prepare a grain offering, they prepare an animal offering, they offer it there, and as the flame begins to consume the offering, the angel of the Lord goes up into the flame and vanishes into heaven. And at this point, Manoah falls flat on his face. He says, we are about to die. And his wife goes, we are not about to die, you big dummy. If we were going to die, he would have already killed us. Now, why does Manoah have this reaction? Because in the Torah, we are told from Moses, man cannot see God with his naked eye. Because if you do, you will die. So Manoah has the right reaction that I have just seen God. I am about to die. But his wife points out to him, dude, you would have already been dead and you wouldn't even know you died. So we're still here. Apparently he is 
got a plan in all of this, but you can just understand the presence that they were in and how overwhelmed they were in that moment. And so it tells us, and the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew and the Lord blessed him and the spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. One chapter down, three to go. Chapter 14, we enter into the story of Samson when Samson is a fully grown man. Now, I want to introduce something to you you may or may not be aware in the Scripture. It's called the principle of first. And generally, when the Bible introduces a subject or introduces a person, usually whatever the first thing they communicate about this person is generally going to give you the theme of this person's life. It is going to give you the character of this human being. So we are introduced with Samson, and we see right off the bat, right at the very beginning, what kind of person Samson is going to be. And it, it then gets developed over the course of the next three chapters. And the Bible tells us in chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my own eyes. So we know from reading the word of God in the first five chapters that Israelites were only supposed to marry other God-fearing Israelites. They were not to intermarry with foreigners who did not worship Yahweh as their God. And so we see Samson, the very first thing is that he is breaking the law of God by intentionally choosing a wife who is not from God's own chosen people, but from that of the uncircumcised Philistines, uh, as it points out to us in the scripture. And so what happens is, is so that Samson goes down with his father and mother to Timnah to acquire him a wife. And on the journey along the way, at some point he gets separated from his mom and dad and a young lion comes out. Now, I think, it, I think this is actually a warning to him, right? This is like, dude, turn around, go back, go the other way. But you got to remember, Samson is superhuman strong, right? So it says he grabs this young lion, he rips it apart limb from limb, just like one would a young goat, and he tosses it off to the side. Well, then he goes back down uh, to where Timna actually is, and um, he reconvenes with his parents. After going down there, having some conversations, they go back to their town. They go back to where they were, and uh, the lion is still lying on the, the side of the road. But after some days, Samson goes back down um, to, uh, to acquire his wife. Now, at some point along the way, it tells us that Samson, Samson is found in the vineyard. What is Samson supposed to avoid? Grapes. Do we see how Samson just keeps stepping closer and closer to the line of the things that God has specifically told him to avoid, yet he continues to find himself in places where he should not be? Well, 
Also along this trip, as they go back down, he once again gets separated from his parents. He goes over, he checks out the lion kill that he had made previously, and he finds that some bees have been making some honey. What is Samson supposed to avoid? Death, dead, dead bodies, right? So he goes, he scoops honey up out of the lion, which again would make this food unclean. He eats it, says, woo, this stuff tastes good. And he goes and delivers it to his parents. What are his parents not supposed to do? Eat anything that comes from a dead body because it would be considered unclean. So again, we see him taking this unclean food now to his parents. We just see this devolving of Samson is always being tempted, always being tested, seeing how close he can get to the line. And he keeps relying, as we see, on his superhuman strength to get him out of trouble. And so they go down to uh, the village of Timnah, to the town of Timnah, and they prepare a feast there. Now, weddings back then were a lot different than they are today. We do everything for one big day. Back then, and even in many places around the world, they do weddings for one big week, right? Like everything stops for a week. It's a big, huge, massive, week-long party of eating, of drinking, of feasting, of celebrating, just enjoying what is about to take place. So this ceremony begins to take place and the Philistines bring 30 companions out to be along Samson. Think like his groomsmen. And um, along the way, Samson wants to test these boys and go, hey, I got a riddle for you guys. And so he tells them this really clever riddle that has to do with the lion and with the honey. And he says, I bet you can't solve it. But if you do solve my riddle, then I will give you 30 fine sets of clothing. Think like exec really expensive Armani executive suits. I will give you these 30 sets of clothing, but if you can't solve my riddle, you have to give me 30 sets of clothing. So the Bible tells us that on day four of the feast, the boys they're getting really frustrated that they have not been able to figure out Samson's riddle. All the people are like, we can't figure this out. So what do you think they do? They go to start put pressure on his soon-to-be wife. Hey, we need you to get Samson to tell us what the answer to the riddle is because we don't want to have to fork up all this money to buy Samson 30 really nice sets of clothing. And so she uh, does this because they said, if you don't convince him to tell us, we're going to burn you and your daddy at the stake. There's a lot of pressure on this young lady. She doesn't have, you know, she, she hardly even knows Samson. And here he is bringing all this chaos and calamity into her life. And um, she says, well, she starts crying, she starts weeping, she does the things that women often do to convince men to tell them things and to do things. She's trying to figure out this situation. Men know that if a woman cries in front of them, it's a very effective tactic to get them to confess things, to do things, whatever kind of things, right? Ladies, don't use that to your advantage. I'm just pointing it out as an example, okay? So it says... She's crying before him, and she says, you only hate me. You do not love me. You put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he says, woman, I ain't even told my parents. What makes you think I'm going to tell you? And she just keeps crying 
and whining and crying and whining. Samson, they're going to kill me. Samson, they're going to kill my daddy. All these things. And finally, he relents. He tells her the answer to the riddle. She runs. She tells her people what the answer is. They come back to Samson. How? We know the answer. And Samson is really ticked off. He is really mad that she went and told those people and they've now solved his riddle because he's got to fork out 30 sets of clothing. So what is Samson's solution to the problem? I'm going to go over to the next little town and village. I'm going to kill 30 dudes. I'm going to take all their stuff. I'm going to bring it back and I'm going to hand it to these guys. But that didn't satisfy his anger and his bloodlust. He then still goes on. He goes away actually because he's really mad. Well, while he's gone away, this father is sitting there like, I got this girl who is ready to be married. So he gives her to be married to the best man that was supposed to be at the ceremony. And with that, we have made it through two chapters. All right. So now we come into the third chapter of the story. And, um, it says, after some days, Samson had gone back to the wheat harvest. He's now coming back to claim his bride. He is in, <laughs> comes up to the town. He goes right up to the tent like he's just like, yeah, I'm going to take her. She's still mine. And the father's like, dude, you can't do that. He's like, what do you mean I can't do that? Well, I thought you hated her. So I let her marry your best man. And they've already consummated this marriage. So you cannot be married to her. Now, hold on though, before you get too mad, look at her younger sister. Is she not even prettier than she is? How about her? And Samson is having none of this whatsoever. He's like, no, that was my conquest and you have taken it from me. Now I'm really mad at you. So here's what he devises. He goes out and the Bible says that he catches 300 foxes. Now, I don't know. I mean, you, you think of a fox, you think of something really sly. And I just always ask myself, how in the world do you catch 300 foxes? So I did a little bit of reading on this. This word is probably not foxes. In the Hebrew, it's an ambiguous, it's an animal kind of thing. It's more likely jackals, okay? Because jackals run in packs up to 200. So it makes a lot more sense to me. There would have been big packs of jackals around. Samson corrals them. But anyway, he captures 300 of these animals. He gets them all. He ties their tails together. He then gets a torch, ties it to their tails, lights the torch on fire for all 150 pairs of animals, sends them into running into the town of Timnath where all the grain is stored, where it's being made, where it's being harvested, and burns everything to the ground. And the crazy part of the story is that the people actually come away convinced that Samson was justified in what he did. And Samson goes, I'm good. Are you good? They say, we're good. Are you good? Yep. I'm not mad anymore. I'll leave you alone. And he goes off the scene. Well, guess what? They weren't so good because apparently they went to that girl and her daddy, burned them at the stake, what they originally fred to do, and got and killed all their stuff. Killed all the family, burned everything to the ground. Again, total destruction everywhere this guy goes. So the Philistines realized they had this problem on their hand. His name is Samson. 
So they get an army together and they go over to the tribe of Judah because Samson had run away and he's hiding in the cleft of some big famous rock over there. And they go to the people of Israel, you know, we're, we're ready to go to war over this. Like this dude is causing all kinds of problems. And the men of Israel, 3,000 of them say, hold on, hold on, hold on. We don't want any problems. We'll go down here and we'll talk to Samson. They said, Samson, what in the world are you doing? I mean, you know these guys are ruling over us. You know they're our oppressors. You know we can't do anything about it. Why are you causing all this trouble for us? Samson goes, look, if you promise not to kill me, if you promise not to hurt me, I will let you bind me and take me to the Philistines. They say, man, this sounds like a good deal. We can't believe this guy's being so reasonable. So they let him, they bind him up. They march him up to the Philistines as soon as he walks up to this big group of Philistines, it says he just snaps the ropes like they were burned flax, just falling off his arm. He finds a donkey recently dead, grabs the jawbone of the donkey, kills a thousand of the Philistines right there on the spot. And after a thousand, he's finally tired and he's finally thirsty. He's about to die of thirst. He cries out to God, why would you let me deliver your people from these evil, wicked Philistines only to let me die here? And much to my surprise, God supplies him with water and keeps him alive. We are now through three chapters in the book of Judges. And now we come to the most famous chapter, the most famous story associated with Samson, Samson and Delilah. But before we get to Samson and Delilah. There are these four verses, and I'll just recap them for you. After his great victory, after his great revival with water, Samson finds it to be a good idea to go into Gaza, which is the big Philistine city, and to find him a prostitute and uh, do what men do with prostitutes. And uh, uh, the, the people realize Samson is here, Samson is here, Samson is here. So they're making a plan. The next morning, as the sun comes up, we are going to convene upon Samson and we are going to take him out. Samson apparently was wise to their plan. So it says about midnight, he gets up uh, from where he lay and he goes to the city gate, which was closed. He then proceeds to pick up the entire city gate doors, posts, and all, throws it on his shoulder, walks up to the top of the hill, drops it off, and just continues walking off into the sunrise. Now, interesting note about this story, and I never quite thought about it, but someone brought it up, so I think it's an interesting point to bring up. They said, you know, maybe Samson wasn't like the Incredible Hulk that we've always imagined him to be. Right? Like anytime we've seen Samson in the children's story Bibles, he's always like, you know, the white-skinned, olive-skinned version of the Incredible Hulk, right? He's the Hulk, just not green, right? But they said, you know, maybe he would just look like a normal dude. And that's what was so crazy about Samson is that he did possess this supernatural strength, but yet he didn't have physically overwhelming muscles. I don't know. Just think, I've just been, think about it. I'm not saying it's right, but it's just been interesting to ponder what the implications of that might be. So now we get into the big story about Samson. We get into the conclusion where we're now, you know, we're going, we're, we're heading straight down into the abyss right here, okay? So <clears throat> after this, 
He loved a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah, right? Songs have been written. Romeo and Juliet, Samson and Delilah. Some of you know that reference and some of you are going, dude, you are old, okay? So if not, go, go look at those music lyrics on your little Apple phone today. Romeo and Juliet, Samson and Delilah, and you'll get one of the classic country songs of all time, okay? So the lords of the Philistines came up to Delilah and say, hey, we see this old boy likes you a lot. So here's the deal. We want you to seduce this old boy. And if you do, we are going to give you more money than you could ever even imagine. Each one of us lords is going to give you 1,100 pieces of silver. And she says, I am in because I like money a lot. And I don't like this old boy. So she says, Samson, hey, big boy, you and your nice muscles, they're just rippling in the sunshine all the time. Would you please tell me where you get all this great strength from? And he says, baby, because I love you so much, I will gladly tell you where I get this strength from and how it can be taken away if, if you would only get seven fresh bowstrings. And you would come and you would tie me up with those seven fresh bowstrings. I would lose all my strength to become just like any other man. So she ties him up. Men were waiting in the inner chamber, and she says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Samson breaks the bonds of the bowstrings, beats the tar out of all them Philistines, and Delilah is so distraught. Samson, why don't you love me? Why do you hate me? Why will you not tell me where your great strength comes from and how it can be subdued? So she says, you have mocked me, Samson. You have told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he says to her, if they would bind me with new ropes, ropes that had never been used, I will lose all my strength and become like any other man. So she binds him up. Men are waiting in the inner chamber. She says, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. He breaks the ropes, beats the tar out of all of them again, and Delilah is distraught, saying, Samson, you have lied to me once again, big boy. You have mocked me, and you have told me lies. And he says, okay, baby, I'll tell you the truth this time. This time, third time the charm. Right as rain. Here we go. If you will weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pen, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pen and said to him, Now I like this part of the story because watch what happens. The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke and he pulled away the pen, the loom, and the web. Them old boys finally got smart. You see that? They, were not, they weren't there for a third time in the inner chamber to get whooped really good by Samson. So there's no one around this time. They apparently are the only ones who are learning any lessons in this story. Not Delilah and not Samson. But them old Philistine boys did. Now, <laughs> she says to him, how can you say I love you? I mean, do we not see this on movies and stories all the time? 
God, people are crazy. Um, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. Ah, people in toxic relationships. And he told her all his heart, and he said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. And what is probably one of the most terrible verses in all the Bible. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill and the prison, but the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And the story concludes with the death of Samson that they had taken their captive and they had decided to celebrate with a great pomp and ceremony. They are in the temple of Dagon, the God that they worshiped. 3,000 people gathered and they want to, after their great feast and their great celebration, while it is going on, they ask for Samson to be brought out. And as Samson <clears throat> is brought out, he asked a young man to let him rest his hands upon the pillar. And with one last prayer, one last request of God, he asked God to deliver a final judgment upon the Philistines by allowing him to bring the house down. And with one great heave, Samson brings the house down, killing himself and 3,000 Philistines. Then his parents come, take his body, and bury him back in his homeland. Four chapters completely finished in a very short amount of time. Now the question is, what do we do with this story, right? As I, as I went through this over the last couple of weeks in my own quiet time, I, I, I got at least six to eight sermons. I told, I told Kevin, like, this should have been a six to eight, you know, sermon miniseries, and you're making me draw. I got, I got one point I get to make out of this whole story. And the, the, the question that, that I've just asked my, myself and that I've, I've asked others this week is just like, like, like what, as you sit here this morning, what is your gut reaction to Samson? Like, like what do you do with this guy? Like, if, like, like you're just sitting there, you're, you're just trying to take in what I've just said. Well, 
what is your gut reaction to this guy? And I've thought about this for two whole weeks. And after two whole weeks, this is the only thing that I could come up with. What an idiot, right? I mean, legitimately, like what an idiot, what a fool is this human being? I mean, what a moron. I mean, the whole time I'm reading this story, I'm just going like, what did you think was going to happen, you big dummy? I mean, I mean, like you you keep playing with fire. You keep getting close to this temptation. You just getting close. You keep testing God over and over and over and over. How did you really think this was going to end? I'm like, dude, or, or as you guys just say, bro or bro, whatever you say in your young days now, the angel of the Lord shows up. He foretells your birth. Like Samson, I don't know about you, but that just doesn't happen every day. It happens twice in the entire Old Testament. The angel of the Lord shows up, foretells your birth. You were God's chosen unstoppable force until you weren't. Over and over, Samson, you test God. Over and over, you rely on your own strength. This incredible gift that was given to you by God to deliver you out of any and every situation. The warnings were there. How could you not see that if you kept tempting fate and testing God, that eventually you would be overcome? You who was consecrated and supposed to be a conqueror would end up castrated of your strength and conquered. Throughout my 46 years of life, I have come across many people like Samson. People who were incredibly gifted and blessed by God, but never lived up to their potential and to what God wanted to do through them. When I was a church planner and pastor in Seattle, Washington, I got to see the rise of Mars Hill. And some of you know who that is and what that is, and some of you have no clue what that is. God had appointed a man, Mark Driscoll, and he was revolutionizing Seattle. People were coming to Jesus in ways that they had never seen. I mean, the Seattle Times had a, had a thing every year. The 50 things Seattleites hate the most. You know what was always on their list? Mark Driscoll and Mars Hill. Because the people who were coming to see Jesus and how it was transforming so much. One of the most gifted and brilliant preachers and teachers I've ever heard. Photographic memory but full of pride and arrogance. And he brought the whole thing down. And he justified everything they ever said about him outside the church. He had been warned and warned and warned. And it left destruction in his life. I've seen very gifted business people, very successful people in this life. Workaholics abandon their wife, abandon their children, lose everything that was so important to them and to given by God. 
I mean, even right now, we've seen it on the news for the last several months, the quarterback of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, right? Tom Brady. I mean, this guy, the greatest football player of all time, more MVPs, more Super Bowls than anyone. He retires. His wife does not want him to go back and play, but because he can't give up that competitive glory, that feeling of on the field, he has now lost his wife of 13 years. He's now lost his children. He's losing all these games because they really stink this year, right? And he's lost it all. I mean, I mean, for, for one more season, just one more time, he's lost it all for a stupid game. People are continually ruined by money, sex, and power. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what, what, even though we see the Samson story, like, like, why does Samson actually fall? Why does Samson not live up to his potential? Why does he not become everything that he could have been as a deliverer and a judge on behalf of the people of Israel being consecrated unto God? And the scriptures tell us in James 1, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The reason Samson fell is because he allowed himself to be lured away by his temptation. Now, I want to say something. I want everybody to just pay very particular attention to this because in our current culture where everyone wants to be a victim of something, you need to understand the Bible does not allow you to excuse your sin on anyone or anything else. When you sin, when you are tempted, that's on nobody else but you. Your temptation is your own and your sin is your own. You do not get to excuse your sin by blaming on other people. If you do, you are violating the word of God because the word of God very simply, very clearly says your temptation is your own and your sin is your own. And the quicker you learn that, realize that, accept that, and put that into practice, the sooner you will find yourself walking in freedom. Because the moment you blame somebody else for your sin, you will only remain in bondage to that sin. You and I, I'm responsible for my own sin, right? As a parent, it's the easiest thing in the world. Your kid does something, annoys the crap out of you, makes you mad, you yell at them. What do you do when you go to apologize? Listen, I'm really sorry. I, I, I'm really sorry that I yelled at you. But if you wouldn't have done, duh, 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 duh. No! Their sin is their sin. My sin is my sin. I don't get to excuse my sin. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm saying I'm a victim of your sin. Uh, that's why I sin. Not true. The Bible says my sin is mine. Your sin is yours. If we want to not end up like Samson, and bring sin and death and destruction into our own lives, into our own relationships, we have to acknowledge our sin is ours and no one else's. We are not victims when it comes to our sin. 
But where does this enticement come from? The Bible tells us, 1 John 2, 15 and 16, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So if you want to know where all sin comes from, it comes from three places. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. Lust of the eyes, materialism. Lust of the flesh, sensuality. Pride of life, pride. Either outward boasting or inward selfishness. All right? That's where all sin comes from. And you, as a human being, are going to be particularly bent and wired a certain way, right? I am bent towards sensuality and selfishness. That's just, that's my bent. Some of you, like you see nice cars, you see nice homes, and you, materialism, you want more stuff, more stuff, more stuff, more stuff. Some of you, like me, who are bent towards sensuality, more experience, more pleasure, more experience, more pleasure. That is your hook. That is where you go. That is where you find yourself. And sometimes it's in quiet, inward selfishness that's pride. It's all about you because pride is just making it all about you. Or it's an outward boasting where you have to let everybody else know about you. The, you will find yourself, if you examine yourself, wired in a particular way. And by acknowledging this, it allows you to run as far as you can from it. The problem is too many of us want to be like Samson and we want to go to the vineyard in Timnah to see how close we can get to the grapes before it really messes us up. And it's kind of why you don't see me come up here to the front edge of the stage and stand right here, right? Because eventually, if I get really close in an excitable moment, I'm just going to collapse off this thing and I do not want to break an ankle or some other bone in my leg, right? Do not want that story being told for the history of all of Aletheia Church. So I make sure I stand right back here. Now, more likely, one of these days, Kevin's going off the front, right? But... I mean, because he liked to get up close to this thing. I don't even want to attempt it, right? So you could, every time he does it for the rest of your life, you can go, oh, Kevin, you're getting too close. And that's a sign for me to stay away from sin because he likes to get right up here to the edge. So I do not do that. I stay back here in my zone, in the safe space, because I've learned uh, I just don't want to do that. Now, you know, th th this is how I want this story to be a warning and and encouragement to you today. Man, there are some of you who are just playing around with some sin that is going to be the death of you. And, and, and you know it's there. But you are not doing what is necessary to get away from that sin. And if you don't get away from it, though it may not seem like a big deal now, as it plays itself out over the course of your life, it will destroy you. It will destroy your family, and it will destroy every good thing that God wants to give you. And I also want to tell you that those sins can be overcome if you're willing to flee temptation. Because the Bible tells us that if we will flee temptation... That sin will flee us. The devil will actually go away because he goes around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But we can actually flee temptation. As a young man, I struggled with 
the sin that many young men struggle with when it comes to viewing inappropriate images. When I became a believer, I knew this was a massive issue in my life. I didn't know all this Bible. I didn't know all these verses. But I knew this thing was going to kill me if I didn't get away from it. So I made a decision at one point to remove all screens from my household. And for five years, my eyes didn't see a screen. Now, praise God, I'm so glad I grew up in an era when we didn't have screens in our hand. But I tell you what, I would have gotten rid of it. And I want to tell you, I sat, I sat aside screens for five years because I wanted to reorient my brain and reorient my life. And I will tell you, it's the greatest blessing I've ever given myself. Because in over 20 years, I haven't viewed any of those inappropriate things. And I think if you ask my wife, she will tell you it's the greatest gift I've ever given our marriage. Because never once has she had to worry about me looking at anything or anyone in a way that I shouldn't have when it comes to that. My eyes have been on her, focused on her. Now, there are times at the gym that women wear highly inappropriate things, but I have to go run and hide in a corner to work out. But do you know what? That's my temptation. I got to own that temptation. I got to do everything to fight that. But when it comes to a lot of those things on the screen that so many of you guys are struggling with, so many of you ladies are struggling with, it's not that you can't overcome it. It's that you're not willing to put it to death. And you just got to be honest about it. Because that temptation is not too strong for you. If so, the Bible's not true. What's true is that you're not willing to kill that sin before it kills you. That may not be your sin, but your sin exists. And if you don't put it to death, it will not only kill you, it will kill you and everyone you claim to love. That is why sin must be taken incredibly seriously. Now, some of you, as you think about this Samson story, you're going to think about it in a way that says, but I'm not gifted like Samson. I, God didn't give me all these gifts. God, God didn't make me extra special, right? And I just want to say that, that that's just a lie straight from the pit of hell. Um, it is true that God gifts other people more so than you, and in different ways. But you need to honestly assess what the Bible says in Acts chapter 4, that God appoints all men in all time and all places. God has made you exactly who He made you to be for your days in life. You did not choose your place of birth. You did not choose your parents. You did not choose your family. These were all things sovereignly orchestrated by God of when He chose to bring you to reside here on planet Earth. And He has given each and every one of you 
gifts and talents to be used for the purpose of his kingdom. You think of Manoah's prayers. What is his manner of life? What is his mission? An incredible prayer. An incredible question that Manoah asked God. Our life and our mission is to glorify God. And you should do that however God has gifted you. If you want to do that as a stay-at-home mom, do it. If you want to do it as a surgeon, if you want to do it as an accountant, if you want to do it as a garbage man, if you want to do it married, not married, if you want to do it married with 10 babies, married with two babies, like it, it doesn't matter. But the Bible tells us God has given each and every one of us gifts. We are each a part of the body of Christ. And when you and I do not forsake the sin in our lives, we destroy the potential of this body of Christ. We destroy our relationships in this church and who God wants us to be. We have this unfulfilled potential, just like Samson, that was destroyed by our own sin. My hope and my prayer for you over the last two weeks as I thought about this sermon, my hope and my prayer for me and for my family is that we would be a church that is not like the Bible's greatest tragic hero. I don't think there's a greater tragic hero in the Bible and maybe in all of literature than Samson. But my encouragement to you is to be like the Bible's greatest hero. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way like we were, yet he was sinless. Jesus allowed himself to be put to death so that we could also put our sin to death. And today you have an opportunity to drive that stake in the ground. With all decisions, at some point in our life, we just have to say enough is enough. And we have to take the stake, we have to drive it in the ground and say this day, on this day, I am going to fight this sin in my life for the rest of my life. And I am going to do everything in my power to avoid this sin so that it does not destroy me and everything that I love. My prayer for you, that as we get ready to take communion, as you get ready to take these elements of the bread, which represents the body of Christ and that was broken on our behalf, and the juice that was shed for our sins. I pray that they would mean something to you in a very powerful, demonstrative, and meaningful way that it was your sin, the sin that you are now committing, the sin that you are playing around with, that you continue to dabble with, 
It's that sin that put Jesus to death on the cross. It's that sin that Jesus willingly went to the cross for on your behalf so that you could be redeemed, reconciled, and be called a child of God.